everybody, and welcome to another episode of Adventures in DevOps. Uh, I'm Charles Maxwood. I'm kind of filling in for Nell, who usually kicks this thing off. And I'm here with Scott Nixon. Scott, do you want to say hi? Hey, I'm Scott Nixon from Cloud Mechanics. Uh, excited to be here today. One of the things that I find that we talk a lot about at the different conferences and the different things that I'm working on is open source software. And a lot of people have a lot of ideas around open source software but we don't often think about the people who are building it and trying to maintain it. And I had a friend, John, who came to me. He's been a guest on JavaScript Jabber a couple of times. He came and he actually said, hey, Chuck, I wish there was a show about sustaining open source. And that really hit me where I live. And I have a few other friends who are working on projects related to this. So we all got together and we put together a show called Sustain Our Software. You can find it at sustainoursoftwarepodcast.com. And it's a place where several people who are passionate about open source come together and have conversations about how it can be sustained and how it can be maintained and what we can do to help these maintainers continue to deliver us value that we build our software on. Most of the software we're building is based on open source. And so it's important to us to have that maintained and have it taken care of. Come check it out. It's been really interesting to listen to the conversations that they're having from people who are working in it all the time and just hear what they have to say about it. Once again, that's at sustainoursoftwarepodcast.com. Good deal. Um, before we get rolling, I'm a little curious, Scott. I just found out I'm going to be at both KubeCon and uh, Microsoft Ignite. Are you going to make it to either of those? No, I had, I was looking at doing at maybe going to Ignite, but um, now we've got some family stuff that's going to uh, interrupt some of those. The, the ability for me to travel much this year so. Yeah, that happens. I, I totally get that. Yeah. In fact, one of the episodes that I'm doing at Microsoft Ignite and what kind of prompted the topic for today is that I submitted Ruby Rogues and I said I wanted to talk about uh, containerizing a Ruby on Rails app. And so, you know, of course, then I'm like, I don't freaking know how to containerize Ruby on Rails app. So mm -hmm. um, I thought we'd talk about it. And I've, I've kind of got a, gotten started. I think generally the principles are going to be the same for you know pretty much any app you're going to run on a docker container so i think i think there's going to be plenty to discuss here yeah yeah totally yeah i've um i've done a lot of small docker web deployments with python and django and uh yeah it works works pretty great so yeah yeah i'm assuming that the principles are pretty much the same you know you go and you pull an image that has uh, in my case, I just pulled a Ruby image and then, yeah. you know, told it to run a couple of commands in the Docker file and off I went, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, are you using Docker Compose to kind of configure all of this or are you uh, just using just a plain old Docker file? So just to get started, I have just a Docker file. I think Docker Compose is something I'm hitting next just because there are a couple of different services to the app that I want to put up. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, I'm going to need more than one, yeah, um, more than one container to run all the stuff. Yeah. So um, one of the things that's kind of a, you know, best practices I've kind of learned for some, from one of the Docker captains is when you, um, if you're going to have a bunch of Docker instances running, right and you want them to talk to each other, the best way to do this is to basically create, put them all on their own network, right? right. And you can obviously just, you know, manually, you know, do these with the scripts, right? Where you just say, hey, I wanna 
create a, what is it? Docker, Docker network create. And then you just type the name or whatever. And, and then you, then you can then attach them to each of the, the running Docker uh, instances. And, but one of the things, if you use Docker compose, you basically Docker compose by default will like create a new network. And that's one of the, the advantages of it. And obviously you can obviously specify all those multiple um, instances uh, or different Docker uh, containers that that'll be running. And then it, obviously if you configure it, so they'll all, all be on the same network. And that just kind of makes that process a little uh, like easier, you know, cause it's less, um, obviously it's very, it's structured. And so it's really obvious to see what you're, you know, like what's in that Docker file, but it also includes things like the networking and storage and all that stuff. So, right. That makes sense. One thing that I'm wondering about with that is that if Docker compose is going to set up a network and do all that kind of stuff, and then I wind up wanting to deploy this to a cloud somewhere, say Kubernetes or something like mm -hmm. that, is my setup on my local system going to look all that different from, you know, up on up in the cloud when I push it out there? I mean, you still have to have the ingress, right? Uh, because, you know, you still have to configure it, you know, to set up those inbound ports. And right. so, yeah, I, it's... I don't, I've, I'm really not, I'm out of depth whenever it comes to talking about Kubernetes and stuff. So I can't right. really speak very clearly to that stuff, you know, but uh, yeah, it's, um, you know, like when, when you set up that internal network, that, that is, or when you, when Docker Compose sets up that network, it's in, this is, you just should think of it like as an internal network, right? And it's not right. something that, you know, is then publicly exposed, right? Because right. It's, yeah. it's locally addressable. Yeah. for the machines on the network. Yeah, it's and meant then, to where, yeah, they can just communicate, you know, thinking a web front end, you know, to have your Ruby app talking to the, to right. a database or a, uh, what do you call it? Like a, a caching, yeah. know, like a Redis database, that kind of thing. So. Yeah, the, the example that I'm running through, it actually has you set up a machine for Postgres, a machine for Redis, which is kind of your caching layer. Mm -hmm. Um Ruby apps also tend to use the Redis layer for things like uh, running jobs and stuff like that. And then you have your Rails app, which is also on another container. So it looks like you, I'm, a, I'm going to, I've only worked through about half of the, the first stage, which is getting my Rails app running on a container. And, and I do have a few questions about the process that they put me through there. But yeah, it's just, it, yeah, it looks like it's going to walk me through all of that stuff. So mm -hmm. it, it'll be interesting to see where we get. Are you are you planning to host this in on GCP? Because you mentioned that. Um, I don't know. Um, I'm going to be speaking at Ignite, so I'm kind of tempted to put it on Azure. <laughs> yeah. But I've been to Ignite and Build. I mean, between the two conferences, I've been to probably ten or eleven Microsoft events. Mm -hmm. They also used to do Microsoft Connect, and I'd wind up at that every year. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, again, doing the kinds of. Uh, podcast interview, press kinds of things. One thing that I've run into a little bit there is that they don't, they don't necessarily care if you use Azure. Like they, they yeah. want to promote it, yeah. but if I get one of their experts and we talk generally about Kubernetes, they're fine with that. Yeah. yeah. And so anyway, I'm, I'm, I don't know. I'm kind of playing with it. I've used DigitalOcean for a very long time. Mm, yeah. And they're not one of these like, gigantic cloud things that are impossible to figure out for a normal guy like me. Yeah. And so I'm kind of tempted to throw something at them, but I, I don't know. I haven't decided exactly where it's going to land. 
Yeah, it's really interesting that the DigitalOcean has become such like the like the fourth cloud option, you know, that yeah. and I've never, I haven't used it in a long time back in, Oh God, I'm just going to say back in the day. Cause I don't remember. It was probably 2012 or before they used to um, have like this special kind of service just for Django and it kind of like went away and, and, you know, but, and I haven't used them since. So, but yeah, I've heard lots of, and you know, they're really inexpensive and kind of easy to use and they've really worked hard on their tutorials from the stuff I've seen. So, yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm playing with that. Also, if I can get this running, then I can probably move off of, I have kind of an auto deploy service that allows my, you know, cause I have a, I have another developer working on this particular app. And so it allows him to go in and push a button and have it deploy. And I don't have to give him credentials on the server or anything insane like that. So, yeah. Are you using a good CI CD, you know, delivery mechanism? I'm using Cloud 66. Okay. And they've, they've sponsored Ruby Robes and I tried them out. I really like it. I mean, it's, it's super easy to deal with. And gotcha. so there's a lot going on there, but I'm, I'm kind of also now thinking about, okay, you know, is, is, you know, is, is there some easier way to orchestrate this if I'm, if I'm on containers instead of on a, a virtual private server, you know, so it's its own virtual machine and yeah, just push it into a cluster and say, I need enough of these to handle the, the you know, handle the traffic, go mm-hmm. and then have it go, okay, we're, we're, you know, we're starting to max out and then have it spin up another container. And then when it's done, it just goes in and kills the container because there's nothing really perpetual on the on the container yeah yeah and um i mean obviously if you're gonna you know is this the the idea is this app is just kind of like a like a like a single web instance so you're not like running you know multiple distributed failover type no i'm not doing any of that stuff yeah yeah if if their kubernetes cluster goes down then so does my app i guess yeah yeah but you know at the stage i'm at right now i mean we're we're getting ready to start beta testing it and so it's not, it's mission critical for dev chat, but it's not, mm. you know, we're, we're the only ones that would be affected if it went down. Yeah. Yeah. I've got some, I've got an internal app like that, that, uh, is actually becoming less and less relevant, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally understand that. One, yeah, the, one other thing that I'm wondering about though, and maybe you've got experience with this doing some of the, you know, setup and deployment and stuff like that is that, um, the app currently uses PostgreSQL. And I've thought about actually switching over. I know DigitalOcean again has a uh, like a hosted Postgres option. Okay. Yeah. And so I could just migrate the database into there. You can also on Amazon. I think they have a hosted Postgres option. Yeah. And I mean, so yeah, instead I mean, of using a container to run the Postgres engine, you know, because you can't put the data in there, right? Because if it kills the container, hmm. then you lose all that data. So yeah. Yeah. You, you want to, you want to, you want to use something. So in the, you know, I don't know what digital oceans version of this would be, but you want to use some kind of like persistent storage. I'm seeing something that says volume block storage and spaces, object storage. Yeah. Um, Yeah. The volumes um, or some, sometimes they actually work it out so it can run on their object store, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, ultimately I, I, I think unless you're going to be running, like a, an app that has lots and lots of data and lots of, you know, super optimization needed. I think you should always start and prefer 
host, you know, manage databases because yeah. it's just not a core competency. And, you know, and if, especially if you can get in something that's will, will auto scale and that manages backups and, and yeah. you know, you know, all this stuff, there's like, there's all these things that you need to be doing with databases where you're like, you know, rotating logs and vacuuming the things. And there's just all this stuff that's going on that, you know, you just, it, it, there's no value in messing with that unless you're Netflix or somebody. <laughs> yeah, I agree. <laughs> so um, one other thing that I'm just, I'm wondering about, you know, while I'm asking all of my noob questions and that is, so I, I started going through the tutorial and, you know, it has me start with a basic image and then it tells me to run a copy command to pull my application and copies my application over to the, the container. Mm -hmm. um, sets the work directory. I set an environment variable. And then, you know, I, I have a run command that basically installs Node.js because I need it. Mm -hmm. And then, um, you know, installs the Rails dependencies and compiles my static assets. So CSS, JavaScript, and uh, images. And then um, sets an entry point. And they told me to actually combine all of the shell commands into one command. Mm-hmm. And I didn't quite understand why I shouldn't just have like run this, run this, run this, run this. I don't know if that's if that's an optimization suggestion. When you so one of the things is my understanding is that when every time you have like a separate run command, it creates like a separate layer in uh -huh. there, and and you know and that matters if you're going to save it. Yeah, I'm. I, I, that, yeah, I that's kind of what it implied. It, honestly, yeah. is that each run command creates its own image. Yeah, well, they it, well within a Docker thing, they have this concept of like a layer because uh -huh. um, you're essentially starting off with some kind of you start off with kind of like the operating system at like a very low low level, right? Right. And then you just add layers on top of it. Not you know if you actually go to like you know like hub.docker.com, you can like literally go in and look at each one and see all the different things it's doing. Right. And I, I, I don't have a proper, other than just to say there are layers, I don't have a better explanation than that. But like when you, when you'll save, when you'll save like a Docker image, what you're doing is essentially saving those layers that have been added on and, and stuff like that. And I forget there's some more nuances to this, but uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that was my understanding is that it just saved you from creating those layers, which I guess when you, when you uh, save and push your final Docker image, yeah, it, it stacks all that stuff up mm -hmm. and, and saves each intermediate image. And so yeah. it, it essentially saves you, yeah, all of that uh, time, effort, and space. But yeah, so I've got, you know, run, and then it's got a bunch of uh, and, 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 and. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which isn't that pretty, I'll, I'll just say, so. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, a lot of times, especially when you're doing anything that, essentially looks like a shell script, it can be really, really ugly and hard to read because of just the nature of what the shell language looks like. And then plus every single kind of Linux tool, you know, has its own, you know, parameters and a million different things that just make it just, just explode with the amount of complexity that you're kind of like looking at. So, yeah, that makes sense. Back when we were starting up new shows, one of the shows that got started was Views on View. And one of the things that was really fun about that is that I got to know a bunch of really terrific people in the View community. And furthermore, 
one thing that happened that really hadn't happened on any of the other shows, we actually got a member of the core team to come on as a regular panelist on the show. We have Chris Fritz on there. The other thing is, is you may recognize some of the other voices. Ben Hong, who's on the official View News podcast, is also a panelist on the show. He's worked for Politico and now works for GitLab. We also have a bunch of other terrific panelists that come on and talk to you about what's going on in the View community. And because they're so closely tied to View and they talk to people about View all the time, they're very up-to-date and very knowledgeable about what's going on in the View community. So if you're looking for a way to learn Vue.js or if you're looking for a way to stay current with Vue.js and kind of have the water cooler conversations you wish you could have about it in places where maybe they're not using it, then definitely check it out. You can find it at viewsonview.com. And I'm also a little bit curious because, you know, your Docker containers, like I don't want to put like API keys or anything into the Docker file. Yeah. That, that seems like a really terrible idea. So, yeah. so how do you manage secrets if, you know, and, and you, you kind of mentioned that that was a topic that you might talk about in a future episode, but <laughs> how do you do that in Docker then? Because if I'm going to commit this and then I'm going to say, go run in the cloud. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, the, you know, so what the, what you were making a reference to is that it's best kind of a best case scenario. If you can use some kind of a secrets management platform uh-huh. where you, um, you know, so, so AWS has, um, they have something called parameter store and then they have also something called secrets management. And then, you know, I think Azure has vault and there is, and then there's HashiCorp has this thing called vault as well. Okay. And it's the idea is that you use say one credential that, or in the case so it, with AWS and those in the cloud ones, you can have a role that talks to these, you know, secrets management services, and then through code pulls down that information. And so that information is never written to any of the containers or the block storage or any of that stuff. And it's, you know, it's basically only unencrypted when it's in memory, but it's encrypted when you have it involved or in parameter store or secrets management. Um, you know, you know, the way, a lot of the ways that you, you know, bootstrap in secrets within say like a, like a Docker compose file is that you're just referencing like these local ENV files that you're actually, they're not a part of your Git repository, but there's something that gets copied over as well. And you're just putting it, you're copying that whole file over as well. So that's, that's how you can manage it without these complex, you know, you know, I don't know if, if I should just call them like a, a secrets endpoint basically like an a secrets endpoint api type thing yeah yeah that makes sense i've also seen like encrypted files but then you still have to have the encryption key in your image somewhere to unencrypt them so yeah yeah the, the all, vault solutions sound, sound like they make more sense yeah i mean you pretty much always have to you have to have something that's giving like bootstrapping the initial set of permissions and when you have something in say an ec2 you can do that with a role like the the ins the, you know that computer instance that VM whatever you want to call it literally gets all of its permissions through the role, and then your code is able to then talk talk to those parent you know to these storage place you know storage places to then load in all of this these secrets into memory. So yeah, yeah. So you know in the you know and whenever when I've deployed J, both Django sites running in Docker Swarm or kind of single instance Docker containers, 
you know, I've always just, I just run the application uh, within that container. Uh, and because of the way I tend to manage assets, I, all my assets are always pushed to uh, S3 and then mm -hmm. distributed with CloudFront. I don't, I typically make a point not to ever have that, that Docker instance actually serving the static assets. It's literally just making that, you know, kind of, um, it's just serving that HTML output that it, the application right. creates. And then I always use, um, you know, managed databases. Uh, you know, I've, I've typically worked on smaller web, uh, web-based applications that that's very appropriate and usable. And, uh, you know, we're not right. like managing tons of data, not having tons of scale. So it works really well. Um, and, you know, and I also will, I tend to use, I'll tend to use managed services for things like Redis caching, um, worker. Uh, what, one of the other things I'll containerize are um, like worker instances. So we, and, in the Django Python world, we use something called Celery as a like a job queue that uh, will use Redis as like a database to store these jobs. But um, it's essentially the Celery Python application that's processing those jobs and main managing all the access into the database and that kind of stuff. Right. So the the talk that you're going to give is that is the idea that you know it's a kind of an introductory talk to containerizing a rails app and then you know maybe you show one or more way you know places that you can deploy this yeah i'm i'm still working on some of that so. yeah yeah i mean one of the it's kind of funny because you can with all the if you're using you know um, kind of a regular ci cd platform like bitbucket in my case uh, or you know i don't know circle ci or you know, who's the other one that's really nullified, it's gotten really popular. You could literally have the same application to de deploy to multiple different hosts, you know, in your, when, with your tutorial to kind of show people that, uh, you know, you can containerize this thing, but then it's, you know, it's really, it's fairly simple to just build a configuration for these new platforms. And then with the, with these CI CD tools, it kind of gets the application deployed for you. And it's pretty, yeah. pretty, it makes it a lot easier to conceptualize and it shows you how like Docker is when you, what's the, what's the phrase everybody goes around where, um, you know, portability. Yeah. That's what the word I was thinking of. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, on the front of the, you know, the build and the CICD and all that stuff. It's, uh, I, I hadn't even thought about that, but I like the idea of being able to set it up and then, you know, I can run tests against the image and just, you know, know that it's going to work. And, you know, when I push it to production. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I mean, the, I think the, I think one of the wonderful things about these CICD platforms is that it allows you, you give them access to that service. You don't give them access to AWS or any of these places. All they're doing is getting the ability to like, you know, some, you know, contribute code and merge code and, and those types of things. They actually never get anywhere near the data or the actual hosted uh, application. Mm -hmm. And, and like, you know, and I suspect that this tool that you like so much cloud 66 and the nullifies the world. I mean, this is, they're making it, you know, just as absolutely dead simple as possible. Yep. 
yeah, we, we actually did a Ruby Rogues episode on Shiplane, which is a tool for managing and deploying Docker. And Shiplane? yeah, it's, yeah. And uh, so, yeah, it was interesting talking to him too, but I, I just, I really dig the idea of, hey, you know, it, it successfully built a Docker container It successfully ran end to end tests against it, you know, so let's push it live. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, if tests are, are there to help you make sure that you can do that in a, such a way. And if you yep. keep them, keep up with them enough, you know, you don't have to go out and, you know, f- deploy to some staging environment and then click around and try to make sure everything's working. <laughs> yeah. In, in the case, in our case, essentially it would be to beta test new features if we had a staging environment, but even then I'm, I'm really in favor of feature flags for that kind of thing. And then just, you know, mm-hmm. set it up in production, turn it on for people who are interested in getting that stuff early. And then, yeah, just see where you end up. Yeah. Cause they'll tell you it's not working or they'll just not use it. And so if you see them use it once or twice and then not use it again, that's an indication that you can run off. Yeah. So if somebody comes to you and says, Hey, I've got this application, let's say a Django app. I mean, mm-hmm. I really don't think the, I don't think the the differences are big enough to to worry about, and uh, you know they they kind of want to use the Docker approach and put things out there. I mean, where do you start and where do you run to? You know, I mean, I think a lot of it, right? It's just like I'm going to look a lot at what are they doing right now. Like, so I mean, there's certainly a lot of applications out there that are just running an application. They don't have need for, they're not using caching, they're not doing any of that stuff. And so there's Mm -hmm. a lot of really simple ways, you know, things like we had talked about uh, that makes it really easy to get those deployed and put them in a, you know, put them in these Kubernetes clusters and whatnot. I think, I think, um, you know, Elastic Beanstalk is is actually a, um, it, it looks like one of these simple services, but it uh, at the underneath level, it essentially is configuring and deploying the application within Docker. Now you can actually, you don't have to create like a Docker file or anything like that to get it deployed. You're literally able to kind of just like WYSIWYG configure it. Um, I think, you know, the, the advantages of using Docker ultimately are that you're going to use this as something that allows you to scale um, and to maybe not have as many resource, you know, maybe you're running five EC2 instances, but you're mm-hmm. running multiple applications across these different EC2 instances because you're running them like a true Docker, you know, cluster. And so there's, you know, maybe they're in a swarm. And so then you have services and you are able to, you know, it, you let the management software decide where it's going to put these instances based off of load and memory usage and all these types of things. Mm-hmm. And so I think, um, you know, those are, those are the, that's where you really see the benefits because you could, you could essentially not have, you could, you could be deploying both your staging dev test and production all within this same set of five EC2 instances, but you're doing them to different services. Uh, you know, maybe different swarm clusters, those types of things. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, th- that's that's one of the ways that you can have a lot of this flexibility, maybe limit the amount of money you're spending. Because if you're, because imagine if 
So I said five instances. Now you could, if you had test staging and production and you wanted to have, you wanted to, you wanted your test and staging to replicate production and in production, you have two, two web instances talking to maybe a managed database. So you need this. So now all of a sudden that's six EC2 instances that you would need if you were trying to replicate it. And so, you know, right there, you're, you know, it's it, a lot of this is about managing, you know, the, how many instances are you managing, how much stuff is running. And so if you have it, if you're letting this, like I said, the management software decide how to scale it and manage those things, um, then I think, and, and cause then you can also build that to where it will add new instances dynamically. If it, if it realizes that you're getting a lot of load, cause maybe it's black Friday and you know, it'll start scaling out the number of EC2 instances you have and, you know, and, and you maybe don't notice it because the system is kind of growing and shrinking as needed. So, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, one of the things is there's always just you have these instances that are just massively underutilized. You'll have things that are running one and 2%. You know, that's one of the most funny things I'll see is somebody shows up with this server that's they're paying, paying $600 a month for, and it's utilized one or 2%. Yeah. And they are, they have this $600 a month instance because when they have these unknown big events, yeah. they want to be able to handle the load but they don't have, you know, they haven't done the work of, of configuring, you know, auto scaling groups and, you know, yeah. you know, you have to configure metrics to monitor, you have to figure out what are the things, you know, processing power, RAM, like at what trigger points do we scale up and start adding new instances? Because you pro- they, I've had customers go from $600 a month instances to like $40 a month you know, with two different instances. So you had some failover across availability zones and stuff like that. And now they have the ability to scale up when they have these big instances. So. Yep. Yeah. That makes sense. I mean, I think one of the, if you, if you're just trying to find your way and, and trying to understand the value of Docker, I mean, you can really just start off with using Docker in a development environment, getting comfortable there. And then, you know, my next step would be to maybe you start, you know, because my philosophy is every single developer. So if you get 10 developers, every single developer should have, should be able to have their own private test environment where they can deploy code to, they can just destroy anything in that environment right. and it doesn't affect anybody else. And so I think, you know, having a development cluster just for, for Docker or Kubernetes or whatever you, whatever you yeah. like, want to use. I think that's a good way to kind of get going. And obviously you, you'll learn a lot in that process. The problem you ultimately have is if you're doing Docker and test and those types of things and you're not doing it in you know, production, now you have more complexity for the developer to manage or think about. And you know, hopefully it doesn't cause any problems, but you just never know. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. So do, I guess I guess the other thing I'm I'm more on the dev side on this than the the yeah. op side. Do people generally run their tests in in a Docker container, or do they just do that the way I've always done it and just you know run it locally on my machine? Yeah, I, I mean you definitely can can run tests by you know initiate you know because, okay because so you can it's it's kind of funny because yes you can. Once you've like say deployed an application to run within 
like a, a container, right? Mm-hmm. The only thing you can do is start new instances that's based off that same image right. to then and run like management commands. Because essentially running tests in that fashion, because it is, it is, has the, the feature, I'm sorry, like the characteristics of a management command, because it's something that starts and ends, right? As opposed to a, like a, an application that's meant to stay on all the time. So right. yeah, you definitely can run tests within those containers. And honestly, I would be surprised if every CI CD software out there isn't using containers. I, I'm, I'm mostly certain that that's how most of them work right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think it, you're right. And essentially you just set that entry point to, you know, whatever you use to run the tests as opposed to whatever you use to start your server, your web server yeah. or whatever. And, and, and whenever you can, when you're configuring something like Bitbucket, for example, um, that's the one I, I use the most. And so that's the one I'm, why I'm referencing it. But one of the things that you do is configure at the top of the file is you're essentially giving it, um, you're giving a name, which is a reference to basically a Docker image. So the same yeah. when you go to hub.docker and you look up, say, Rails, you know, there's all these different versions of, say, Ruby-Alpine-version, what, whatever. And, yeah. you know, that's essentially what you're putting in the CICD um, configuration files as well. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah, I think I think running tests locally is is a development concern, right? And yeah, yeah you want to run tests before you deploy it. But the reality is that the CI/CD stuff is meant to be, if you configure it in, in the proper way, where maybe you're working out of like like a you're working out of maybe your own branch, right? You're not working in master because master uh-huh. is maybe what you send to production, but you're working out of some like branch that lives for like a day or a week and your that branch is is configured so that it does a full like normal build process so it runs through your tests it deploys to some like i said uh, an individual developers you know set of servers so to speak and uh so my feeling is that that's you know, that's how you run your tests mostly. You know, like you're developing, mm-hmm. you're like running them locally because you're developing them. And then as soon as they pass and you're happy with stuff, you, you commit your code and then you push, you know, push to Git or Bitbucket. And then that thing triggers the process of running your tests and building and really validating um, what you've done in an environment that is not just your machine. The thing that I believe most about top-notch developers is that they're constantly learning. Whether you're out watching videos, whether you're reading blog posts or books, whether you're out writing open source software, you're always out there learning how to be a better developer. And my friends at Thinkster and I teamed up and we put together a show called the DevEd Podcast. You can find it at devedpodcast.com. It's run by Joe Eames, who you might know from JavaScript Jabber, Adventures in Angular, and Views on View. And they have terrific conversations about what it means to become a better developer, to learn how to do development, and the ways that you can learn. So if you're looking for inspiration and ideas about how you can do better and learn better as a developer, then go check out the DevEd podcast. Yeah, that makes sense. I I think the only thing that I see is that one of the things that really, I guess, um, I really like about Docker is that I can run the same environment here as I can in the cloud. And so if I'm going to run my tests, running them in a Docker container that looks exactly like the Docker container I'm going to deploy Mm -hmm. means that all of the dependencies are the same, all of the underlying infrastructure is the same, 
and I, you know, I don't have to worry about what those differences are going to be because they're going to be basically the same. Yeah. Now, generally, like with Rails, it doesn't really matter unless you just have a really, really old version of Ruby. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I could see that as a concern depending on what you're running. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, you're, you're totally right. I mean, you can definitely um, make it to where you're, when you're running your tests locally, you're running them within like Docker, you know, running these management commands where it's, it's essentially running those tests and, and, and replicating what would essentially happen within a CI CD. I just, it, what happens is that you, you go up, you know, configuring all of this stuff locally is, is a level of complexity that is a little harder to kind of, you have to really have learned a lot about Docker to just be able to get to that point to where you can do those yeah. types of things. And so, yeah, I mean, it's all definitely, definitely good stuff. Yep. Absolutely. Are there any questions that I didn't ask that I probably should have been thinking about? <laughs> you know, I mean, obviously, well, so, I mean, you know, I think the, you know, what's the preferred or what's considered one of the better, you know, like reverse proxies to, to push the your Rails app through, you know, are you guys usually Nginx? Nginx, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the big thing is you have to make sure that you're if you're going to push something to production that that you've spent some time understanding that your indirect that your Nginx configuration is appropriate and proper, you know, because right. obviously, because there's Docker images have good defaults, so to speak, right? However, yeah. you know, there's, you know, and part of it is I'm out of my scope with, with, <laughs> with, uh, rail stuff, but I'm, I'm just trying to think through some of the, you know, and it's just, you know, you just, you want to make sure that you're not going to, you know, expose yourself in some, some weird way. And I mean, I think that's always the, that's always, always going to be a problem when you're managing all of the software that that's used to serve your application, as opposed to using you know, a cluster like you were talking about, like these GCP or whoever yeah. cluster. Um, I'm trying to think what else would. Yeah, I guess that's another point in favor of, yeah, it's the GCPs or Azure's or whatever is that um, I can containerize my app. I don't have to worry about configuration for Kubernetes or anything like that because yeah. essentially I can build my image or, you know, I think image is the right term, but I can <laughs> build my image and then I can essentially say I can hand it off to Azure GCP or Amazon, and then they'll set up all the rest of it so that it reverse proxies properly and scales properly, yeah. and load balances properly and all of that other stuff. And so essentially I just said, this is what you need to run the app. And then they go and they run the app at whatever scale I need. Yeah. And I, I mean, one of the things is if, and I don't, I don't know how DigitalOcean is configured, but I'm, what I'm thinking through is like, you know, there's things like, you know, is there some kind of web application firewall? Um, yeah. I don't, I don't know if they do. Know. By default, AWS does some default kind of security filtering. It's very high level, but, you know, obviously there's things like Cloudflare that can help out with, with some of those things. Yeah. Um, but I mean, you know, I wouldn't say it's always the best idea to just expose, you know, Nginx with your application on the internets without a lot of... Yeah, there's just so many vectors and ways yeah. that, you know, things can be exploited. Even if you're on the most, even if you think you're on the latest, you know, everything, you know, there's just a lot there and it would, you know, it, it would be better to delegate some of that responsibility to people who have, 
to something that is a little smarter security wise than, you know, just Nginx. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that makes I mean, sense. That's, that's always, I mean, that is definitely a big concern for any time I'm going to deploy something is like, you know, making sure that, you know, w- w- the way we've configured it, that things are isolated in a way and that we're, uh, you know, we're protecting data and we're making sure that, you know, I mean, one of the, it's, it's become like kind of a joke that, you know, people will mention that or find out that somebody left some S3 folders wide open. And so people were able to just copy all this customer's data down. And, you know, and so if anything, spend more time thinking about how you're securing your customer data, those types of things I think would be really, you know, I mean, these are always important. I just think that it can be overlooked with when you start touching all these tools that are kind of new and stuff. So. Yep. Makes sense. Well, cool. Well, let's go ahead and do some picks and wrap up. Um, yeah, absolutely. Do you, do you, have, do you want to start? Do you have some things you want to shout out about? Oh, let me, I was going to like, I was just, it was funny cause I didn't write anything down ahead of time. So I'm going to need to like, like go look around and see what have I been looking at lately that I, that I like a lot. So that's fine. Um, I can throw mine in out go for real it. quick. So, uh, I've been rearranging my office. It's a, it's a in a perpetual state of being rearranged, actually. Hmm. Um, and mostly it's because I decided I wanted to do video uh, shows and I wanted to put together some stuff with doing green screens and things like that. And so um, I've, I've got video equipment. So now I got to move everything around and put a green the green screen at one end of my room so that I can make it work uh, or my office, my home office. So... One of the things that I ran across was that my desk was just, it wasn't working for me um, the way that it was set up. And basically what I wanted to do was I wanted to raise the monitors that I had. Mm-hmm. But it turns out that when you go looking for longer poles for your monitor arms, um, they, they don't really sell them. I couldn't find them anywhere. And I thought about, okay, well, what if I did this? What if I did that? And then I found these um, brackets. They're, they're on Amazon and they're like 10 bucks. And what they are is they kind of have kind of a ratcheting uh, slider on it. And so you attach the, the one end to the back of the monitor, you attach the bracket to the, the, to the monitor arm, and then you can move the monitor up and down and it'll yeah. stay where it is, you know, stay where you leave it. And so I was able to raise my monitors. They were, they were probably three inches, two or three inches off my desk and I was able to raise them another four or five inches. And uh, it just opened up a whole bunch of room on my desk because it's not behind the monitor anymore. The The downside was, was that it exposed the cords that are hanging off the back of the monitor. Uh, yeah. And so I got, um, Amazon had another deal and it was like 10 bucks, I think. I don't remember for sure. So if I link to it and then you're like, oh, that's not, you know, <laughs> it costs more than that, I'm sorry. But they had 100 Velcro strips for cord management, which is way more than I need, but <laughs> dang, super convenient. Yeah, And so uh, I, I picked those up as well. So my desk management has gotten a little bit better and I'll probably wind up rearranging the rest of my room this week. So yeah, those are my picks. And then, yeah, if you want to connect over Ignite or KubeCon, I'm probably going to set up some meetups. So if you go to devchat.tv and then uh, click on the events tab, it should take you to a place where I'll have that set up when I know when and where I'm going to be that, you know, I can meet up with listeners. So cool. Very cool. So um, I'm going to give two like closely related uh, suggestions. So I, you know, I've, I've 
I'm 41 years old now. And I'm, it's funny in the last five years, I've gotten way more into cars for some reason. And, um, I actually have a Tesla right now. So, and I love that, but, um, I think getting more into cars in general and getting more into my Tesla has made me appreciate other things as well. Uh, and so if you haven't, if you know, if you're a prime user, you can watch the grand tour, which is the guys who did, um, oh gosh, it was like this famous, it's, so it's Richard Hammond, Jeremy Clark and James May who did like this famous race car show mm-hmm. or just, you know, car show in general in the UK and that they brought to the U S and Amazon. They've done three seasons of it. And I just like kind of like laugh myself silly watching it. I wasn't really a big fan of like the the old show that they had done or I hadn't watched much of it, but like this, you know, the three seasons just, I just like, I'm like crying laughing sometimes. They're just so ridiculous. They just do insane stuff. Like for one, for example, like one of the, I think it was the second season, you know, they make the, they do these like car challenges where they try to like, like, you know, modify their car, do something weird to it. And then they kind of like race, uh, you know, over like, say like a thousand miles to get from point A to point B and whoever gets there wins. And for no, you know, there's like no prize or whatever. It's just pure, you know, Hey, I won. And you know, one of the guys did, he like tried to like use mud, like clay bricks that they were actually like, so they weren't even actually like cooked bricks. It was just like clay cut into brick form or whatever. And he like, it's just so ridiculous that he like, built a car like that. So, but I, I just think the show is hilarious. I think anybody should check it out. The grand tour on Amazon. Um, the other one is also an Amazon recommendation. Um, and it's, uh, Jim Kana, which is, so there's this guy, a rally racer, uh, Ken block, who's been doing these. And I guess this is like the 10th. It's kind of like the Jim Kana files is the one I'm watching which is kind of like a behind the scenes of him making this next, Jim Connor like movie or whatever. And he just does these crazy things with all these different cars. Like he's doing like donuts and you know, there's a guy riding a Segway in the middle as he's like going around in a circle and just, just crazy little stuff like that. And I just think it's, it's a lot of fun to watch. So cool. That's it, that's it for picks for me, man. Good deal. Awesome. Well, I think we, we we're booked up with a lot of guests for the next you know month or so. So it should be good. A lot of interesting folks coming on. Yeah, I'm excited. All right. Well, thank you very much, man. It's great. Great chat with you today. Yeah, you too. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.